Well, good morning. Well, hey, if you're visiting, my name is Sam, one of the pastors here at Philippi, and uh, it's good to have you guys this morning. Uh, pretty much half our crew actually is gathering this morning up at Willow Lake. We had our f- church family camp uh, this, this weekend, so there's a, there's a whole other mess of Philippians up at uh, Philippi, or up at uh, Willow, <laughs> Willow Lake gathering this morning, but glad you guys made it out this morning. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, if you want to grab your Bibles. We finished the book of Mark last week. <clears throat> this week we'll be in 2 Samuel, and we'll have some other plans from there. I want to welcome the kids this morning joining us. Uh, we love kiddos here, and every so often we do these family services where the kids join us. So parents, thank you for uh, hanging with your kids in church. And um, there, are some, there was some activity bags. Hopefully you guys got them. And there's some fresh tomatoes over there, by the way, and tomatoes of fruit, so fruit of the spirit. There you go. Okay. If you guys want some fruit, you guys grew those, right? Bob and Laurel, did you guys grow? Yeah, okay, perfect. There it is. Let's pray. A second Samuel 6, by the way, if you're moving there. Oh, Father, as we open your word, I pray a sense of seriousness would come over us. God, we wouldn't approach this flippantly or casually, but that we would recognize, God, that when the word opens, you speak, and we really ought to listen. Lord, I pray that we would be good expositors this morning, and we would be looking to expose the, 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 the meaning of the text written by the Spirit through the, the biblical authors this morning. Father, lead us, guide us, Meet us here, Lord, and meet with the rest of us up at the lake, God, this morning. Spirit of God, would you work? Would you stir? Lord, may we get into your word and get your word into us. Father, may we read your word and let your word read us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, sometimes you do the wrong thing and things go wrong, no surprise. Sometimes... You do the right thing, and things go right. Sometimes you do the right thing, and things go wrong. You ever had that? (laughs) It's like like one of the most confusing things, especially for Western Christians, because we really have this idea that that God is like a genie, and if we just do what God says, then our life's going to be great. But sometimes we do exactly what God says, and our life isn't so great. You ever notice that? It's something we got to think about. It's something we got to deal with. Let me give you some examples. Maybe God um, puts it on your heart to, to do something and, and you walk in that obedience. God says, hey, I really want you to share the gospel with your Aunt Laura at the next family gathering. So you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to be obedient. And in your head, you're picturing this amazing moment where Aunt Laura just hears the gospel and breaks down crying in your shoulders and prays that she gets saved and everything's great. But instead, you're obedient. You go to the family thing. You share the gospel with your Aunt Laura, and she uh, has some choice words for you and never wants to talk to you again. Wait. I thought, God, you said to do that. Why didn't it go good? If God said to do it, surely it's going to turn out good, right? Because every time God says to do something, it's going to work really well, right? Okay, here's another example. God tells you to invite someone into your home, maybe a, a teenager that you know is struggling and needs a place to stay, and you say, okay, God, I'll do that. So you, and you're having all these pictures of this, this whole life change and life, life transformation happening. You invite this teenager into your home, and then they end up robbing you blind and running away. God, why'd you tell me to do that? If you knew that they were going to steal from me and run away, why, why would you tell me, Lord, to do something and then have it turn out be a bad thing. I mean, surely if God says to do it, then, then, then it's going to turn out good, right? Wrong. <laughs> not, not always. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to ask the question, what do we do when the things that we do for the Lord don't turn out the way we had hoped? What do we do when God says no? Or what do we do when God says, hey, I want you to do this and it's going to be really painful, a number of, uh, of years ago, I wasn't, I mean, it was only a year ago, I don't know, my wife and I said yes to doing foster care. We took in this little baby, and, and, we, and, and I think in my head I was thinking, we're, we're doing the Lord's work, so surely this is going to have a good outcome. And in a way it did. But in reality, you know, we poured six months of our life into this baby, and then after six months, we never got to see him again. Kind of didn't turn out the way we were wanting. We were hoping to have this relationship with this kid, now we don't ever see him again. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like why, God, why did you ask us to do that? Just to hurt us? 
Like, why, why are you doing that? Have you guys ever had something like that in your life where, where you trusted the Lord, you were obedient, and then things didn't go the way that you wanted? I want to talk about this this morning. Uh, David, King David, uh, his stories in First and Second Samuel, they're, they're some of the most, I think, <laughs> some of the most misused Bible. I think David is almost always used when, when people preach the word to make a point about if you do the good things, good things will happen to you. Because look at David, right? Good guy, served the Lord. And look, he had a great life. But, but don't forget Bathsheba. If you do bad things, bad things are gonna happen to you, right? And that's true to some degree, right? Yeah, watch out for Bathsheba. And yeah, trust the Lord, God's good. And when, when you do what God says, there's a blessing in that. But here's the thing we don't often think about with David. David actually did a lot of good things and had a lot of bad results. You know that? Like he, he did the right thing a lot and it oftentimes led to kind of a bad outcome. And we're going to look at a few of those this morning. So this morning is just going to be a standalone teaching. We're just going to spend this week in, in 2 Samuel examining this. And we're going to look at basically three different scenes of David doing what was really the right thing, but having maybe not the outcome he was hoping for. Here's the three we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at is when things go wrong around you. You do the right thing, but then things go wrong around you. Then we're going to look at when people assume the worst about you. And thirdly, this is the tough one, when God does stuff without you. Okay? So we have when things go wrong around you, when people assume the worst about you, and then thirdly, when God does stuff without you. How do we deal with this kind of outcome in our situations? Let's start with the first one, when things go wrong around you. I need to give you a little background into the life of David and where things are at in this narrative here before we just jump, jump right into the, to the verses, okay? David, this is sort of the golden era of his life. David had a pretty tough life. God chose him to be king, anointed him to be king when he was just a shepherd. Saul was still king. And uh, God showed favor to David through his life, but eventually he ended up hitting a point where, where Saul became jealous of David, and he spent really the first third of his life running for his life hiding out in caves from King Saul, who was jealous of him, trying to kill him, right? And so David went from being the outlaw, and then finally God delivers Saul into the hands of the enemy. He takes, he takes Saul out, and now it's time for David to rise and become the king of Israel. And, and we read all about this in 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. And through a series of events, David becomes really the uniter of the kingdom. He brings back together the north and south kingdoms. I don't know if you guys know this, but Israel, for most of its life, was split into two kingdoms, north and south. And so David brings all of the tribes back together into one united monarchy. And he had pretty good poll numbers. David was a pretty popular guy. Everybody at this point in his life, at least, liked David. Okay, there's not a lot of complaints in, in David's complaint box. This is really considered the gold standard of Israel's kingdom history right here where we're punching in. Okay, so it's important that you understand that. Things are going good. Uh, Israel is thriving militarily, administratively. Um, it, it's, it's really great. And, and David has built this new capital called Jerusalem in which to rule from. Uh, David is a good king. He's a merciful king. He's a godly king at this point in his life. But there's one thing missing. There's one thing missing, and it's this box called what? It's called the ark. See, David wanted God's box, the Ark of the Covenant, this box that sort of represented God's theocratic rule over the people of Israel. He wanted it brought into Jerusalem. Why? Well, because David didn't have an interest in being a dictatorial monarch. David understood this thing called theocracy. Theocracy means that, that it's a nation ruled directly by God. David understood that even though he was technically the king, it was really God's people, and he wanted his people to be ruled by God directly. He also understood, David knew his, his history, he also understood that when the, when the ark was in the place that it was supposed to be, God would bless. Okay, he's having these memories of the ark being marched around, remember the walls of Jericho. And so David, and this is a very godly desire, a very godly and honorable um, interest that David has, he wants to bring the ark of the covenant into the city of Jerusalem, into the city of David. Eugene Peterson, he says about the ark, he says, Israel's, uh, the ark is Israel's central symbol of God's sovereign and saving presence. David wants this symbol in his city, in the capital city. He wants God's presence tangibly to be there. Now, is that a good thing? I would say so. 
Is David desiring to do a good thing and bring in the ark in? Yes, I would say so. The ark has been camped at Shiloh and its tent for some time now under the care of the Levites and the Aaronic priesthood. And now it's come time for David to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And this is where we punch in here, chapter 6, verse 1. David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now this is, a, you gotta picture this in your head, okay? This is like the crest of, of the height of Israel as a kingdom. This is amazing. 30,000 men have turned out. This is a huge parade. This is a huge celebration. This is very exciting. Everyone there is pumped. God's bringing, or David is bringing God's box, the ark, into its place. The tent is prepared. It's been brought into Jerusalem. And now tangibly, the presence of God is going to be in Jerusalem. How exciting is this? Now, there's no question David's doing a good thing here. And now look at what happens. Verse three, they carried the ark of God on, note it, a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, I want you to note that name, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, which means that Uzzah would have been behind the ark. Now, who are these two guys? These guys are part of the priesthood. Their job has been to take care of the ark, which is essentially, by the way, this nuclear power reactor of God's pure, holy presence, okay? Uh, their job has been to care for this thing probably most of their adult life. And now David calls them up and says, hey, bring this thing into Jerusalem. So this is a big day for them. This is like secret service on, on, uh, on uh, um, whatever the day is that they make the president the president, okay? They're, they're very tuned in, they're very focused, and, and their attention is exclusively on the ark. Not on the crowds, not on David, their attention is on the ark. And, and, the, and they put the ark on an ox cart, okay? And as they're rolling it in, look at what happens. As they're rolling it in, verse 5, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This is just a huge procession. And when they come to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Why? For the ox stumbled. So picture this in your mind, right? So, so Uzzah, whose entire life has been to care for this box of, of supreme importance, sees his worst nightmare come. The ox starts to move. They hit a bump. The cart starts to shake. And the box starts to slide off of the cart into the mud. Uzzah does what you would think Uzzah would do. He goes, ha, and goes to stop the box from sliding into the mud. And look at verse seven. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Have you ever read that before? That's in the Bible. <laughs> it's very Indiana Jones, you know? Remember when they opened the ark and the guys all melt and stuff? Okay, yeah, anyways. Um, it's a terrible theology. Don't get theology from Indiana Jones, by the way. Um, what's going on here? I mean, well, this isn't really the point of my sermons. I'm not going to belabor this, but let me just say this. Uh, it would have been better for God's holy, by the way, holy means set apart, other than God who is perfect and righteous can have no part with sin. It would have been better for God's box to slide into the mud than to touch the filthy hand of a sinful man. Okay, do you understand how far the gap is between the holy and righteous God and between us as sinners who, who, who are unlike God? God is holy and perfect and just and set apart. So Uzzah, who meant well, was trying to do the right thing, reaches out to stop the box. Oh no, God's presence has fallen in the mud. Better stop it. And he's struck dead. Now, for the record, I think Uzzah's probably in heaven. Okay. Um, but, but God's justice in this moment demanded Uzzah's life. By the way, aren't you glad we don't live in the old covenant? <laughs> Wrath of God. The cup has been drunk by Christ fully. Yay. I don't have to worry about touching a box. Praise the Lord. Okay. Uh, let's move on. 
My point here, and what I want you to see is that things are good, things are awesome, this is great, this is the crown jewel moment of Israel's history, everyone's having a great time, and then a wet blanket gets thrown over the whole thing. Buzzkill, oozes dead. The crowd is awkwardly quiet. Did that just happen? What do we do now? And how does David feel about it? Look at verse eight. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. I don't think David's angry at, at God. He knows God every right to kill Uzzah in this particular moment because David understands the nature of atonement, that without shed blood for sins, we stand before a holy and righteous God as guilty and, and, and filthy, right? So I don't, think God is, or I don't think David's mad at God, but what is he mad at? I think he's just mad. Man, sin is infuriating. Sin equals death. Does death make you angry? It makes me angry. It's the same feeling Jesus was feeling at the tomb of Lazarus. Anger, sadness. David is grieved deeply by this. He also feels, look at verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord. He was afraid of the Lord that day. You know, David remembers that even though God is his dearest of loves, that without atonement, without someone paying for David's sins, he is just as easily his most fearsome of enemies. I mean, David has a reality check right here. Oh my goodness, God is holy. God is righteous. And then he feels despair. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David's like, how am I gonna get this thing in here? I, my, my, my main guy just died. My main ark carrier just died because of this moment. How am I gonna get it in here? So, here's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a situation where David is doing a good thing, and Uzzah is doing a good thing, and they're doing it for the right reasons. This is good. This is praiseworthy. We want the presence of the Lord to be in Jerusalem. This is a good thing. But here's the problem. Here's what I want you to see, okay, as we're, as we're processing this question, right, of, of why, do we, why sometimes why do we do the right thing and have the wrong outcome? Well, here's an example, um, because sometimes just because the mission and the motive are good doesn't mean that the means don't matter. Are you with me? Just because the mission is good, just because the motive is good, well, I did, I did a good thing and I did it for the right reason, yeah, but the means were not good. What do you mean, Sam? The means were not good. Look at what the author makes sure that we're aware of. How was the ark transported? It was transported on a what? On a new ox car. You're like, who cares? Well, it sort of matters. It sort of matters because God sort of thought it was important. And he gave instruction about how his nuclear box was to be carried. It was to be carried with poles by men who would carry the poles. Why? Well, maybe because God's presence is kind of serious business. But I don't know if it was Uzzah's idea. I don't know if it was David's idea. But someone had this really harebrained idea to streamline and to update God. <laughs> Like, man, we could buffer a lot faster if we'd update the, the you know, we have some infrastructure here. We got this new Philistine idea of an ox cart. We could, we could use that instead. So let's import this new idea, and we'll, we'll get this thing done a lot quicker. So they threw God's box on a cart. So where did they go wrong? They didn't listen to the Lord. The means, in this particular scenario, the means were not right. And for that reason, Uzzah paid the price for that. Now, I don't know whose idea it was to put it on the cart, but clearly... It was not a good idea, okay? So what do we learn here from this about when we do the right thing and things don't go well? Well, sometimes we need to examine, we need to stop and take time to say, okay, we did the right thing, we did it for the right purpose, but did we do it the right way? Did we do it the right way? And this is important, this is, important. This is pertinent for Christians because a lot of times, especially in the West, we, we're quick to give ourselves a pass as long as we meant well. You know, like, like there's, there's certain people in this community that like to scream at cars, they scream the gospel at them when they go by. Have you met these people? Uh, they scream at them when they're at the, 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 the farmer's market with megaphones. Um, I, do I think they're Christians? Probably. Do, are they sharing the gospel? Yeah. So they're doing a good thing. Are their motives pure? Yeah, probably. In my opinion, they're doing it completely wrong. Okay? I just think you're, the means are wrong. You're, you're screaming at people at the farmer's market. Stop it. Stop it. Go have a relationship with them. Okay, build into them. Uh, so the means matter. Okay, maybe, maybe you're thinking, you know, I really want to see this really, really cute guy that I'm dating. I really want to see him to come to Christ. And my, my heart is good. I want him to be saved. And so I'm going to date him. And then maybe I'll be able to share the gospel with him. Okay, well, that's, really good. that's a really good motive. And, and maybe it's a good mission, but it's a terrible means. Okay, don't do that. Don't missionary date. Bad idea. Okay, bad idea. These are just a couple examples. So, so it matters how we do things. Now, what does David do here? Verse 10, so David, not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, 
But David took this aside the house, took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And I can imagine Obed-Edom's like, uh, you're taking the box to my house? Can we take it somewhere else? Like, did you see Uzzah's body? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I could just see Obed-Edom like watching the replay on YouTube of Uzzah and he's like, uh, okay. <laughs> Stupid. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord cursed Obed-Edom. No, no, what does it say? The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Where the presence of the Lord is, there's blessing. This, 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 this box is not a curse. <laughs> it's only a curse to those who, who mistreat it. Remember when uh, the Philistines got it and they put it in their temple with Dagon and all their other gods? It didn't go well. So this ends up being a blessing to Obed-Edom. Verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. Now I can imagine David at this point is thinking, man, should we even be messing with this thing? Like Uzzah's dead. Should we even be fiddling around with this box? Uh, but his guys say, hey, we put the box in Obed-Edom's house and they're, they're blessed. I mean, their grass is greener. Their fridge is miraculously full of pizza at the end of the day. I don't know exactly what, like, I don't know what blessed means here. Um, but whatever it is, they're like, this is blessing these guys. And all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So after three months, David goes, okay, um, let's try it again. Let's see if we can bring this box in. And look at how he does it. I want you to see this. Look at how he does it. Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark, no ox cart this time, okay? They're carrying it the right way. They took God at his word. They're doing what he said. When those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. <laughs> Catch that? David's like, all right, you guys are going to take six steps and then we're going to sacrifice. Okay, now we can kind of laugh at that, but in reality, what is David doing? He's taking God seriously. He's taking God at his word. So what are we learning here? We're learning that when things don't go the way we want, when, when we're disappointed in our doing for the Lord, what we should do is we should do what David did here. He stopped and he assessed the situation. And he goes, wow, you know what? This didn't go like I had planned. It didn't really, this whole like bringing the ark thing, it didn't really go the way I planned. So let's stop and let's examine here. Let's grieve our losses and let's realize. Now in this particular scenario, we learned that there was something that was out of place. So what does David do? He corrects his error. So, so I suggest to you that sometimes when things don't go the way that we had hoped in our, in our doing, in our good doing, we should stop and ask the question, am I really doing what God asked me to do? And am I really doing it God's way? Because I think sometimes we just shove things right through. We say, I'm going to do something because this surely is a good thing, right? Surely God is all about this. So that's when things go wrong around you. Now, number two, let's look at when people assume the worst about you. This is like the best nagging wife passage in the Bible, um, if you're looking for those. Um, in, in the concordance, if you look nagging wife passages, this is the... This is the one. I'm a little tired. I was at family camp all weekend. I drove home late last night, and I, I'm just, I'm a little tired. Okay, so forgive me if you're new. I'm not usually this stupid. Okay, verse 14. 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. So the ark is coming into the city. Finally, God's presence is coming tangibly into the city of Jerusalem, and David is ecstatic. He's dancing. Now, there's, there's, um, there's dancing, and then there's dancing with all your might, okay? And this is David dancing with all his might. You ever seen that guy at the wedding dancing with all his might? Like, that guy's dancing with all his might, okay? So David's getting down. I mean, he's going crazy. He's so excited. He's so pumped. The presence of his Lord, the Lord that chose him from among the sheepfold, the, the one that, that took him as this young nobody watching the sheep and has given him everything in his life is coming into his city, the city of Jerusalem, and he's so excited, and David is wearing a linen ephod, okay? Uh, and linen ephod was basically the priestly garment. It was this white garment that David bore. Now, it's kind of puzzling why David is wearing this. Um, he, he basically sets aside his kingly attire and he puts on this, this white robe that, that would have been for priests. Um, and David, verse 15, all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of horn. And 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in his heart. And there's a lot of backstory here, a lot of reasons that she probably doesn't like David very much right now. 
when David went off and was running from Saul, she remarried. And then when David became king, he said, hey, can I have my wife back, please? And, his, and, and her new husband was like weeping along the way. You can read about it uh, in, in 2 Samuel, the first part. And so she's, she's apparently a little bitter at David. She doesn't share David's necessarily excitement over the presence of the Lord. And she's looking out her window and she sees David just out there like going crazy, super excited, just dancing around, having a great time. Everybody's having a great time. Everybody's exciting. There's music. It's this really cool event. And Michael's just bitter. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. This is good. He's doing good things here. He's been a good king. He's almost acting like a priest here. And when David had finished the offering, the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. What a good king. And distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisin to each one. Then all the people departed to the household. Okay, so this is great. David's doing good work here. This is good ministry. Good king. Good job, David. Good king. Okay, he's doing a good job. But Michael, and notice it doesn't say Michael, the, the wife of David. It says Michael, the daughter of Saul. You remember who Michael was? David's first wife, the one that was Saul's daughter. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Female servants is one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Oh, thanks, babe. Really, way to just ruin my day, you know? David comes in, he's having one of the best days of his life. He's just rejoicing before the Lord. And Michael seems to have this real issue with what David is doing. Now, a lot of people take this and they think, oh, David must have been, he must have been running around his underwear or something, right? He must have been being inappropriate. I studied that. I don't think it's true. It's baseless. He, he was covered. He wasn't being shameless. What David was doing was he wasn't acting as kingly as Michael wanted him to. She's pretty shallow. She's like, hey, is that what kind of king you want to be? You want to be someone who's, who's willing to take their kingly garb off and dance before the Lord? And I love David's response here. He says, he says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above you and your fathers and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. 22, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. In other words, babe, you haven't seen nothing yet. I will make myself more disgraceful because I care about what the Lord thinks more than I care about what you think. So here we have an example, again, of David doing the right thing, doing a good thing before the Lord, and unfortunately, he gets made fun of for it. He gets really kind of given a hard time from his, from his wife at home. I just want you to take one quick thing away from this. What do we do when we do the right thing before the Lord, when we walk before the Lord in obedience and people around us persecute us for it? What do we do? What did David do? He danced harder. He just danced harder. David's like, okay, well, I'll just turn it up. I'll just dance a little bit more. Now, I'm not saying be snarky with your wife. I'm not saying don't listen to your wife's counsel. But when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to giving yourself completely to the Lord, I love that David is like, I'm just going to dance harder. I mean, we know from the scriptures that we're going to be persecuted. We know that we're going to be misunderstood. And oftentimes, that's where our discouragement comes from, doesn't it? So David just danced harder. Now, let's look at our last section here. This is the most important one, so tune in. What do we do, not only when things go wrong around us, what do we do when people assume the worst about us, but thirdly, what do we do when God does stuff without us? What do we do when God does stuff about us? This is, this is another uh, interesting story here I want to look at really quick. In verse 1, when King David, or when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, God's box, dwells in a tent. So David notices something. He notices that he's had this real time of, of blessing. God has been kind to him. A time of peace, a time of prosperous, or a prosperous time where he's been victorious over his enemies. He's built for himself this really amazing, immaculate house. And David looks over at the tent that God's presence is living in, and he goes, you know, this is just not right. 
Why, why is God's presence living in a tent while I'm living in this big cedar house? Now, it's important to understand David knew that God gave him everything he had. Okay, and David knew that he was nothing without the Lord. That without the Lord, he'd still be watching sheep. He'd still be the littlest of, the, of all the brothers in Jesse's house. He knew that without the Lord, he was nothing. And David is thankful to the Lord, and he wants to express that thankfulness to the Lord. That's a good thing. Praise the Lord, okay? So he goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he goes, hey, I want to build God a house. Now, Nathan, in verse 3, makes kind of a bad prophet move here. He just rubber stamps the thing without even asking the Lord. Nathan said uh, to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. In other words, this can't possibly be a bad thing. Why not? Just do it. Sure. Build God a house. Why would God have an issue with that? Okay. Then Nathan goes to bed, verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And here's what God says. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, this is God speaking directly to David here. He says, David, would you build me a house to dwell in? Notice what God doesn't say. Oh, David, thank you so much. I just, I've been wondering how in the world I was gonna get out of this tent. I mean, I'm like this homeless God, you know, all these other people have these temples, these immaculate temples, and, and here I am living in a tent, you know, and the God of the universe, Yahweh, Lord of Lords, and here I am. You know, thank you, David. I just was waiting for someone to think of me. That's not what God says. He says, oh, you're gonna build me a house. You think so? You're gonna build me a house, okay? Verse six, God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people out of Israel from Egypt, or, uh, people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In other words, do you think I'm homeless, David? Do you think I, do you think I, I, I sort of chose to live in a tent. There's a reason that I've put my presence in the place where you're going to come and meet with me in this tent. In verse seven, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, David, did I ever tell you I wanted a house? You ever get your wife that gift? You know, you're like, I just thought you'd want me to spend like $500 on this thing that I thought you wanted. Like, like I bought my wife our first year of marriage. I bought her this bike that was way too expensive. And I didn't connect yet because it was our first year of marriage. I didn't really connect that like it's her money that I'm spending too. Like, babe, I got you this $500 bike. She's like, did I tell you I wanted a $500 bike? I'm like, well, surely you would want a bike. I mean, like, I would want a $500 bike, right? So, so David's thinking, well, well, surely God is the kind of God who is sick of living in a tent. Surely he wants to live in a house like I'm living in, right? And God is like, David, I never asked you to do this. I never, t I never told you you wanted a house. Do I need your help, David? In verse eight, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. He's reminding David now of where he found him. Dave, David, don't forget, buddy. You were nothing when I found you. Verse nine, and I've been with you wherever you've went. D David, you never, you never had to do anything for me to be with you. I've just been with you because I'm good, because I'm kind, because I'm that kind of God. I've always been there with you, he says, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Not because you were going to build me a house. Not because you were going to do anything for me. Just because I love you. Just because I'm good. He says, now I want you to count how many times God here uses the words, I will. I will. Not you will. I will. Just see how many times. See if you can count. He says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. And be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. What a trip. David's like, hey, God, I'm going to make you a house. David's like, no, I'm going to make you a house. What? What is he talking about? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his 
kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is speaking of Christ, by the way. Just note that. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Now, this is just fascinating to me. David comes to God wanting to do a good thing. And we know God was planning to make a temple, right? Solomon was the one that ended up doing it. David comes to the Lord wanting to do this good thing, and what does God say? He says, actually, thank you, but no. In fact, now I'm going to tell you all the things I'm going to do for you. Isn't that crazy? Now, I just want to point out three quick things, and we'll close. Three quick things here about when God says no. Three quick things about when God says no to something good that we want to do. Number one, write this down. God is much less concerned with what you will do for him, and he's much more concerned with how much you will rely on him. Let me say it again. God is much less concerned with what you will do for him than he is concerned with how much you rely on him. Here's what I think is going on here. I think that David, even though his motive is good, I think God sees that there's a real dangerous sort of threshold that David's about to cross here. And that threshold is that David is starting to think, man, you know, things are going pretty well. God is pretty lucky to have me. I mean, we're crushing it, God, me and you. Like, look at Israel. We're thriving. And, and, and now I can build this temple and we can really just take it to the next level. And I think that God loves David so much that he needs to tamp down his doing because what happens is oftentimes our doing is contaminated. Listen, it's contaminated by earning. And I want you to see the distinction here. Doing things for God is good, amen? Trying to earn things from God, not so good. Any of you that understand the nature of the gospel, why is it not good? Because you can never pay God back for all he's given you. I think David here is starting to, to cruise very carefully, very cautiously, very slowly. He's starting to cruise towards this idea that maybe I can start to pay God back. Man, God, you've done so many things for me. You've done so much for me. You've been so kind to me. And, and now, Lord, I just think it's time for me to, to start to pay my own way. Like a good 20-year-old should do, right? Hey, mom, dad, thanks for you know, feeding me and buying my Hot Pockets. And, and now, you know, now I think it's time I start paying rent. That's, that's what David's doing here. He's like, you know, God, you've given a lot to me. Now I'm going to give some back to you. Now, in a normal world, that'd be great. But in God's economy, no. Because God does not want David to start to think that maybe David doesn't need God that much. That maybe David and God are equal partners that maybe David really did earn his salvation, that maybe David really did work to get God's favor. God is graciously stopping David from thinking he is earning in any way God's goodness and God's affection because everything David had from the Lord was what? It was a gift. It was a gift. How gracious of the Lord here. God is not opposed to our doing. Note this, God is not opposed to our doing, but he is opposed to our earning. When we start to think, God, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to earn what you've given me. The reality is we are like those kids who on, uh, like, like my kids on Christmas, they say, God, Dad, I want to buy you a birthday present. They say, hey, here's 10 bucks. Go buy me a birthday present. Are they giving me anything? No. David's like, God, I want to build you a temple out of your stuff with my body that you made and the ideas that you put in my head and the breath that's in my lungs. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? And, and you really, you know, I, I think that would really help sort of pay you back. And God's like, oh, that's cute. You're going to build me a temple out of my stuff with the idea that I put in your head. Uh, you know, see, we start to think that maybe we can pay God back. And this is subtle, but it happens. And I want to speak to those who have been walking with Jesus for a while because this is the temptation that goes under the radar. You know, as long as, I'm not, as long as I'm not doing any crazy cardinal sins, right, then I'm okay. But here's what happens in our Christian walk. We start to do good things for the Lord. We start to get it together. We start to follow the Lord. We start to get obedient. And then we start to think, man, God's sure lucky to have me. And in that moment, what do we do? We stop leaning into the kindness of God. We stop throwing ourselves at the mercy of God and being like, Lord, you 
are everything. You have everything. You've given me everything. It's all your grace. And we start to think, you know, I think I got this. I think I got this. This is, this is the, the bane of the existence of the, the, the mature Christian, right? Man, I, I haven't committed that sin over there for quite a while. I seem to be doing pretty good at it. I've been reading my Bible every morning for 10, 20 years. I seem to be doing good on it. Do I need to wake up this morning desperately throwing myself at the mercy and kindness of God? No. I think I got it. I think I got this. And here's what happens, okay? Here's what happens. It's subtle, but salvation and obedience lead to blessing and fruitfulness, which leads to self-reliance and pride, which ends in self-ruin. You know how many believers start to put it on autopilot because they think, I think I got this now. I'm starting to pay the Lord back now. We're, we're almost, you know, I've almost paid off my debt. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You owe God everything you need everything from the Lord. I think God is trying to remind David of this principle. So what does this have to do with our theme? Well, why does God say no sometimes? Why does God um, not allow us to have the outcome that we want? Because I think he wants us to remember that we're nothing without him. See, when things go right, what do we do? We go, man, I'm pretty good at making things go right. I got a good marriage just because we did premarital, because we didn't sleep together, because we read this book before we got married. And man, my kids are Christians. They're walking with Jesus because we homeschooled. It's because we had them read these books. And, you know, I have never cheated on my wife. It's because I have covenant eyes on my computer. And because, you know, and, and I don't have cancer because I ate good, healthy food. And blah, 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 right? And what do we start? What, what's the problem with all that thinking? I did this, so God gave me that. God is saying, oh, no, 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 no. You think any of that was your choice? That was my grace. That was my kindness. If you're still with your wife or your husband, thank God. If your kids are walking with Jesus, thank God. Don't you dare take the credit for it. If you led someone to Jesus the other day, shared the gospel, thank God. You are nothing special. I'm sorry. God is kind. God is gracious. He is so good. He doesn't want David thinking that God needs David. Because guess what, guys? God didn't really need David. David was great. He's just a man. And as we see, as we continue to read the story, he was a very deeply sinful man. And I think David stopped seeing how much he needed God, and that's what led to his sin with Bathsheba. He stopped realizing that he needed the Lord. Second thing I want you to know, and this is very important, we don't always get to do what we want to do for God. Did you know that? This is very unpopular in the Western world because we grew up on Disney movies that said you can be anything you want to be if you just believe in yourself. <laughs> Wrong. Not true. I cannot go out of here and be an NBA player. I cannot go out of here. I don't care. It's not possible physically. I'll, it'll never happen. Okay? Contrary to, oh, I shouldn't say this. Okay. <laughs> Contrary to progressives, I cannot go out of here and have a baby. Amen. Amen. Does anyone want to disagree with me on that? No. Thank you. I cannot go out of here. Sorry, Pete Buttigieg. Okay. Uh, he's pictures of himself in the hospital with his baby. Like they just had this baby. It's like, no, you didn't. Okay. Anyways, I don't know why I said all that. You don't get to do everything you want to do for God. And we need to know that. See, David really wants to be the guy to build the temple. And what does God say? Lovingly, graciously. David, I'm going to have someone else do that. Why? Well, did David do something wrong? Not here. Did God not let David build the temple because David disqualified himself? Well, it does say that David couldn't build the temple because he was a man of war. But God never told David he shouldn't be a man of war. David was God's man of war. David made war according to God's will. So he was disqualified not because of his morality or his ethics. He was disqualified because of God's choice. God chose another person to be the one to build the temple. First and foremost, in the immediate sense, I should say, Solomon. In a more eternal sense, in a more full sense, who? Who built the temple of God? Come on, guys. Who, Jesus, it's the answer that every kid gets, right? Jesus built it. He's the one that's going to build the temple, and it's not going to be a temple made with hands. It's the living stones, the stones that you and I here fitly join together to house the presence of God. So sometimes we say, God, I want to do that. You're 18, and you're like, God, I'm going to be the missionary of all missionaries. I'm going to go reach unreached people groups. And God says, I love that. I can work with that. Love that you want to do things. But guess what? You actually are going to work a nine-to-five job and raise your kids. Ah. Uh. 
but I wanted to go, but the, uh, God's like, yeah, someone else is going to do that. Are you okay with that? Here's what Christian maturity looks like. Christian maturity doesn't look like I do so much for God. Christian maturity says God does so much, and I'm so excited about that. And occasionally, I get to be used by the Lord. You know how many Christians faith shipwrecked because they first got saved and they, they told God what they were going to do? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And God says, well, you think so? Why don't you sit down, and I'll let Solomon build the temple. Sorry, David. God's not trying to be cruel, but he doesn't want us thinking we're the center of the universe. Now, let me ask you, are you okay with what God is not going to do through you? Are you okay with that? Oftentimes, the greatest things we will do are something someone else will do, and we simply laid the groundwork for it. Your kids will probably do more great things than you do. Are you okay with that? I mean, are we so excited about the kingdom of God that we don't care who gets the credit as long as God gets the credit? Are we so excited that we don't, we don't care? Okay, so, so maybe our church isn't seeing this kind of thing happen, or maybe our mission field isn't seeing this kind of thing happen, but we care so much about the supremacy of Jesus' glory that we just are glad it's happening. I'm just glad it's happening. You know, we see this in parents, right? When, when, when we have our kids and we go, I'm going to be the one to disciple my kids and I'm going to be the one to lead them to Christ and I'm going to be the perfect example. And then they want nothing to do with your Jesus and nothing to do with your gospel. And then they go off and when they turn 18, they come home and say, man, I met this guy and he told me this crazy thing about this guy who died on a cross. And you're like, what? <laughs> now you could go, well, I was going to be the one. To... Or what do, you do? what do you do when that's you? You go, oh, thank you, Lord. Somebody told my kid the gospel that they're saved now. I don't care who did it. I don't care who did it. I'm just so glad that they got saved. We have to be okay with what we're not. And sometimes God tells us no because he's going to use someone else. And let me just say, just because something is a good thing doesn't mean it's a God thing. Just because something is a good thing doesn't mean it's going to be your thing. God gets to decide that. We should spend less time thinking about what God didn't say to do and spend more time thinking about what God did say to do. Amen? And this is, I don't know what it is. We love to think about what God might have said. We love to flip through this book and look for secret messages in the prophets. So, you know, maybe we can figure out when the rapture is and maybe we can, we can find this, like, oh, maybe there's extra gospels. Maybe there's the book of Enoch or maybe it's the book of Judas or whatever. Let's find the secret things. No, God said what to do. He said, go make disciples. Just do that. Just do that. We don't need to get crazy and guess. David is so worried about what God didn't tell him to do. He should be focusing on what God did tell him to do. Now, third thing I want you to see. Our disappointments in our outcomes are usually just a limited perspective on God's kingdom. Now, don't, don't lose me on this. I'll say it another way. Every no from the Lord is a yes in something else. Every no from the Lord is a yes to something else. David's no, nope, David can't build a temple. David's no was followed by God's greatest yes. What was God's greatest yes for David? Jesus is gonna do it, David. Sit down. Sit down and let Jesus do it. Now, David could mourn that. I wanted to build the temple. Now, see, if David had his way, um, the temple would have been the, 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 the epicenter of God's redemptive work. But God says, no, it's going to be way cooler than a temple, David. You don't even understand. See, he says it right here in the Davidic covenant. He says, after you die, I'm going to raise one up from your, le your lineage who is from the son of David. He's going to come into this world. He's going to pay for the sins of these people, and he's going to establish an eternal house, an eternal temple. We learned about it at the end of the book of Mark. The spirit of God is let loose on, the, heaven, on, on, the, on the, the, the world right now. If David got his way, it would have been limited. God says, this no, David, is a yes to Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate yes that David really wanted. What God is doing is the same thing he's doing for you and I. He's saying, I want all of your worth, all of your identity, all of your joy, all of your sense of self, all of your sense of hope. I want it all to be sourced in the person of Jesus Christ, not in what you're doing for me. That's what God wanted David to think. That's what he wants you and I to think. So let me just summarize it down. We tend to define ourselves by what we do for the Lord. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you're doing that, stop it. Even if you're doing any of the things you thought you were going to do that you're not. Find your identity in the fact that Christ has done it all. Christ has done it all. 
Dallas Willard said, Christianity is the thing you do when you realize you can do nothing. Think about that. Christianity is the thing you do when you realize you can do nothing. It's all his grace. It's all him. He's doing it all. Christianity starts with the realization that you are nothing without God, and it grows by the realization that you have everything in God. That is Christian maturity. Our disappointments in doing, because we do, we do things for God and we get disappointed. Our disappointments in doing, they remind us that he has already done everything. So next time you do something for the Lord, good, keep doing it. Next time you're obedient to the Lord, good, keep doing it. And when you're disappointed in the outcome, I want you to realize, oh, I'm disappointed because I told God subconsciously that if I did the right thing, he was going to do the right thing for me. That's not what Christian obedience looks like. Christian obedience isn't, God, I do the right thing for you, you do the right thing for me. Christian obedience is, God, you've done the right thing for me. Now I'm going to go do the right thing for you. Out of an outworking, out of a continuation, out of a reciprocal thankfulness, a worship for what God has already done. This is what the secure Christian looks like. It really insulates us from disappointment, doesn't it? God, you've already done it. And I'm thankful for that. Amen? Let's all stand and let's pray. Father, you have done it all. You have done it all. You are sufficient. You are enough. And God, I thank you for saying no sometimes to us. I thank you, Lord, that, that you do what you do, even if you don't do it through us. And I pray, God, that we would be a people that are so thankful that you're doing what you're doing, that we are able to rejoice, even if it's through someone else. God, I pray that we would be people that are cheerful in the things that would typically disappoint a human because we have the riches of Christ already accredited into our account. It's all ours. Lord, I pray that we would be people that do things for you because we're thankful, not because we're trying to get even with you, settle a debt. Lord, keep us from being people that try to earn back what you've given us. And Lord, like David, may we just receive the eternal and never-ending blessing that you plan to pour out. Thank you for this passage, God. Thank you that we're in the new covenant. Lord, thank you that Uzzah is a reminder for us of your holiness, how other than you truly are, Lord. Lord, may we take you seriously, take you at your word. Father, bless Philippi both here and up at Willow Lake this morning, God. May we go fill with your spirit and do what you said to do. Make disciples and teach them all that you've taught us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.